Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, uh, welcome to New Books in German Studies, a channel in the New Books Network of Podcasts. I am Michael O'Sullivan of Marist College, one of the co-hosts of this podcast. Today, we're very lucky to have Dr. Rebecca Ayoko Bennett as a guest. She's Professor of History at Middlebury College. Today, we will discuss her book entitled Diagnosing Dissent, Hysterics, Deserters, and Conscientious Objectors in Germany During World War I. This book appeared with Cornell University Press in 2020. It's a must-read for those who are interested in uh, learning more about the First World War, but it's also a book that's really fascinating for those who would like to learn more about the history of medicine, the history of psychiatry, the history of mental health. Um, It makes a a very wide variety of contributions. So without any further preamble, hello, Rebecca. Welcome to the show. Uh, Thank you very much. I'm glad to be here, Michael. Thank you for having me. (laughs) All right. And to start, I was wondering if we could talk a little bit about how you first became interested in German studies. This is a typical New Books Network opener. Now, you and I know each other, and uh, we've gotten to know one another pretty well, but I'm not sure we've ever actually talked about how you first became interested in the field. So I think the audience might be interested in that story. And they might like to hear also about a lot of, uh, you know, some of the work that you did before you started working on this project as well. Sure. Um, this is actually rather interesting because it's a story I tell uh, my students a lot as they're trying to figure out what they want to ultimately do in their lives. And I tell them I became a German historian quite by chance. Uh, it, it starts, I think, all the way back in uh, choices that had bigger consequences, ultimately, if you think about it. But in high school, I wanted to take French. But for a number of reasons, I ended up in the German class. So when I went to college, the foreign language that I knew was German. Nonetheless, in college, I actually thought for a while I was going to major in chemistry. And because of the distribution requirements, I also happened to take a history course. And that history course really uh, sparked um, uh, an interest in me. And I think because of also some very encouraged history professors uh, who were teaching me, I ended up studying Um, history with a focus on Germany, again, because of this quite by chance having learned German in high school. Uh, But even by then, I would say I hadn't determined that I was going to become a German historian. I planned on going to law school. And so I did a bunch of applications, but always wanting to have a plan B and maybe even a plan C, I uh, applied to some other things, including I put in a few graduate school applications for German history too. And uh, thankfully, I got results that I was pleased with in both sets of applications, but I figured I would try history first because there was this sort of natural stopping point if one didn't want to continue, which was, of course, going and stopping after a master's. And I thought, well, either way, that's going to be a, a good thing to have done. I figured, well, then I could turn around and go to law school, you know, sort of defer that. And then if after a year, I decided I wanted to pursue law, I could. Uh, but the first year of grad school, while getting the master's, went fairly well. So I figured I would just stick around uh, what, what turned ultimately to be another six years for a PhD. <laughs> then I said, well, let's try and get a job. So I applied for jobs, and that also turned out well. Uh, then I got tenure, and you know, sort of the, the rest is history. So um, I, I like to say to my students, I think it's pretty safe. I'm not going to law school anymore. Uh, at least I don't. <laughs> but I'm. I think I'm one of those people who finds most things interesting um, if you approach them in the right way. And so I could have been happy as a lawyer or a chemist or probably a dozen other things. So it's. Uh, I'm very happy to be a German historian, but there was not this sort of natural connection. It was sort of a lot of you know by chance choices that just sort of directed me there and and some luck, really. Yeah, that's great. And uh, part of why you and I got to know each other in the field is that your first book dealt with um, kind of a religious history topic that's similar to some of the things I've worked on. And I was wondering if you want to talk a little bit about some of the stuff that you've achieved before this book. 
Sure. Uh, my first book was on uh, German national identity, which I, I like to clarify uh, as from nationalism, but German national identity and how in particular Catholics uh, in Germany after 1871 thought of themselves as sort of the bearers of a quintessential German national identity. Of course, often when we think of German nationalism in particular, um, and that sort of gets blurred into thinking about German, German national identity in the 19th century, we tend to think of Prussia and we tend to think of Protestantism and we tend to sort of think of the Catholics and the events of the 1870s, in particular the Kulturkampf, as very much on the outs and very much as sort of, you know, uh, opponents or certainly integrated into the German nation very tentatively. But my argument there was that while they may not, and not may not, while they didn't buy into the same sense of German national identity being proposed from like a Bismarck or many leading Protestants, uh, they very, very clearly did still propose this idea of Germanness or German national identity, right? Very specifically, a national identity after 1871 that was Catholic in its outlook. And I guess, and perhaps as we talk more about this current book on World War I, you'll sort of see the same types of ways of thinking about things. But even though in the 1870s, Catholics go through this very a difficult period where they're targeted by the German government during the Kulturkampf. It's actually this period of vast opposition that, and the way it's handled um, by Catholics, which in many ways leads long-term to their very good prospects for integration, not only after the 1870s, but long-term uh, throughout the German imperial period. And so that was the first thing I worked on. But again, and this perhaps shows the, the fact that I find a bunch of different things interesting. Um, I've sort of switched it up a little bit here and gone with something very different, which doesn't focus so much on religion uh, with this current book, but on more the understanding of um, medical history or, or the history of science, if one might think of it in terms of psychiatry and psychiatric diagnoses. Yeah, so that's a perfect segue uh, into talking about the the diagnosing descent, the book that we're here to talk about today. And uh, what's your? Can you tell us a little bit more about your intellectual origin story here? Like, how did you? Uh, how was it that this project came to you, and 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 how how was it you decided to write this book? Yes, well, this is also one which has a long history. And I, I guess what do you expect from a historian, right? The answer to the question <laughs> is going to be, well, we have to go back several years. Uh, but for this one, one really does uh, have to go back about 20 to 25 years ago. And I remember reading a very short reference somewhere to the placing of mental, uh, sorry, of uh, conscientious objectors in uh, psychiatric hospitals, essentially declaring them, quote unquote, mentally ill and putting them in psychiatric hospitals. And that at the time struck me as terrible, but also something that must be a very interesting and re revealing of something very, very interesting about Germany at the time. But there wasn't a lot on that topic. At the same time, I had a dissertation uh, that I had to write and then ultimately other things that I had to pursue. So I didn't follow up on that lead at the time. But five and a half or a little, almost six years ago, uh, I was thinking about what I wanted to undertake at that time. And I noticed there still hadn't been much written on this topic of conscientious objectors. So I thought, well, you know, I will uh, take a peek in the archives and see if there's anything I could find. And I wasn't sure if it was going to be, I hoped at least I could get an article out of it. I thought maybe more, but I figured I'd go and see. And so initially my focus was really very specifically on conscientious objection and the medicalization of this. It was only uh, quite by chance as I read through the documents more generally in trying to find these examples of conscientious objectors who were put in psychiatric hospitals that I realized the story I probably needed to tell to incorporate that was actually a much larger one about military psychiatry in Germany and dissent more generally. But it's been, a, a, I guess, 20 to 25 years in the sort of idea phase and then, uh, you know, five or six years in the actual working on it phase. Great. And uh, 
uh, once again, you've given me a perfect bridge to my next question here. Uh, and I thought we could get into the content of the book. And, you know, it, it seems like specifically, you know, what you're writing about here is what contemporaries during World War One might have referred to as war tremblers. Um, or in the Anglo-American context, I think the term that was more commonly used was people suffering from shell shock. And, and that shell shock might be what some of our listeners are more familiar with. Um, and obviously people uh, suffering from what today we'd call PTSD or something from World War One is it's so ubiquitous, right? In depictions of, you know, the war or the aftermath of the war. Um, but uh, I just thought I'd ask you, and I guess you've already kind of started to answer this question, but why does the treatment and behavior of such men from this era kind of offer this really... Um, you know, uh, you know, interesting way to make new contributions to German history as a whole. Yeah. Well, going back to sort of my point that I find most things interesting, I, my guess is, you know, I think probably just about any topic um, looked at the right way can probably provide, hopefully uh, can probably, you know, provide rich insights. Uh, and I certainly hope mine does too. And, you know, I think we can see this in the impressive innovation that's always happening with scholars looking both at old things in new ways, but also new things in new ways. So whether that be different groups, new objects, different types of history um, that haven't gotten as much attention before. Um, in this sense, of course, you know, World War I is a rather recognizable choice as a point of great importance that, you know, we clearly see it um, as a turning point, or as I like to often refer to things as corners. You know, you go down a street and at a certain point you hit a corner and you're at a four-way stop, and you can change uh, very drastically um, the direction in which things are going. And World War I, I think, is clearly recognized as one of these gigantic corners. Um, and while German conscientious objectors might not have been written about a lot, my particular initial interest, German soldiers and specifically war tremblers um, had been, have been quite well-researched. And so I think what I thought initially was that really looking at why there would be this medicalization of conscientious objectors, right? Especially if we think about the larger idea of Germany as, you know, and whether or not you, to what extent you would promote this idea, but, you know, Germany as a particularly enamored with its military, uh, as a militaristic society, you know, um, whether or not, how, depending on how you think about responsibility in World War I um, and things like that looking at the way in which they dealt with a very clear descent of conscientious objection to that idea of military values, right, would be a really interesting way to look at both the workings of the German military, but also the workings of the German legal system and the protections and the distinctions between what one could do in civil society and military society and things like that. Um, and on some level, I think, you know, just the, the treatment of soldiers, because that war embodied so much as it did for all countries really here, and here's a general thing, the hopes and the fears of the society at that time, that particularly how they treated these men when their hopes were not realized, but their fears were by the end of the war realized, I think that can tell us a lot about uh, German society at the time. Okay. And so, Rebecca, one you know feature about this book is probably a feature most academic books should have, but they don't always do it quite as well as you do. And that is, you make, I, I feel like you make very clear from the very beginning and throughout the book, what is it, you know, what it is that you are arguing and what it is that you are arguing against. You know, you have a very clear narrative that you feel has already been established that you'd like to revise in a respectful way. And, you know, then you, um, then you have your two or so uh, really mean, uh, you know, arguments that are very prevalent throughout the book. So I thought it'd be really useful for our listeners to start with the thing that you are, uh, I don't necessarily want to say arguing against, but the thing that you, the, the narrative about World War One, the reading of um, the treatment of, um, you know, war tremblers and conscientious objectors during World War One that you're trying to revise. You know, what's this pre-existing narrative here that you wanted to, um, alter with your research. Yes. And I think that's a, a, a great distinction to make. It's not so much that what has been written before um, has simply been wrong. 
Uh, it's part of the story, but the way I like to look at it is it's only part of the story, right? And so it's sort of really trying to rebalance that story and cast light on things that it appears have been, in, in my opinion, somewhat overlooked. So, you know, there has been a fair amount of work already done on shell shock. There had been, and it, it continues, right? It's obviously a, a, a flashpoint, as I said, for a lot of things that it tells us about this, you know, really important moment in German history. Um, in the German context, as elsewhere, I think largely too for other countries, but specifically in the German context, there, in much of the literature, um, was this very, very heavy emphasis on a couple of things. One, that there was a very limited recognition, if any recognition at all, that war tremblers were actually suffering from an effect. That is, that they were suffering from a traumatic war experience and the war had a precipitating effect. Most accounts instead emphasize that, at least according to the medical establishment at the time, that they portrayed these men as not suffering from an effective war, but more so focused on the soldiers' own inherent weaknesses. That is, that it was something perhaps that came out during the war, but it was really something about these men who came down with um, this war trembling, this shell shock that was being revealed here, and not that it was about the horrific effects of the war. And so that also emphasized in this account that these treatments of these men were very dismissive and indeed brutal. Right, so that they were treated with things like electric shock therapy. They were denied pensions for war injury because the idea, again, was that they would have um, held the seeds of this debility within themselves and it didn't come from the war. It just happened to coincidentally come out at that time. And uh, that it was really essentially blaming, in some ways, these men for their own problems, their own a sickness, if it was seen as a sickness at all. And while it didn't, the, the general literature didn't really address conscientious objectors or deserters more generally within the scope of how military psychiatry treated them, the implication very clearly was if German mil military psychiatry treated war tremblers, men who we would see as actually suffering from, as you would say, something akin to PTSD, if they treated them this horrifically, it probably wasn't much better and probably a lot worse for people like conscientious objectors or deserters um, if they were treated by the, the, the military psychiatry um, doctors at all. And so I think very much that narrative was something that was um, in the literature and, and made uh, in very, very many excellent books in a very, very convincing way. And it's not at all that that didn't happen. Um, in, in, in cases, far too many cases, right? Um, it's just my point being that's not necessarily the entire story. And at least if one were to look at some of the statistical analysis I did, uh, probably not even the lion's share of the story. Great. And so I think now I'd like to give you the opportunity to say, what, what is your fresh interpretation? <laughs> so you're, you're revising uh, this narrative that's been pretty entrenched, and it is interesting the way you put it, and you do this pretty well in the book, right? That in a lot of ways, all this other work that's been done is what inspired you to look at this topic in the first place, you know? Yeah. Um, so it's all been been clearly very well done. But you do seem to have two, if I understand it correctly, two very central claims to the book. So I thought uh, it might be interesting for you to share that with our audience now. Sure. And yeah, just to, to follow up on that, I always like to think of, and I again, I tell my students this, you know, history is a conversation. And you never get anywhere unless you hear, you know, sort of something that you respond to or something that makes you think, hmm, I wonder if it was that way. And, and actually, when I first started this project, I very much thought I was, as I said, going to be looking at conscientious objectors. But I thought I was going to find another piece of largely the same horrific story. Um, and, and initially, I wasn't looking at, you know, men diagnosed with allegedly hysteria at all, because I thought this is well known, and, and it, you know, it, it makes sense, and I'm probably just going to find one more add-on to that. Um, but what I would suggest really needs to be noticed, um, in addition, are as one, that military psychiatry um, should be considered far less negatively than it has been 
Um, not so much that it was, you know, anything great or that there weren't huge problems, or as I said, that, you know, very clearly this horrific treatment of some soldiers who were just dismissed um, as being, you know, basically weak men. It's not that that didn't happen, but that in what I would say is the majority of cases, that did not happen. Um, and that in addition to not necessarily treating men suffering from war trauma so dismissively, that there were actual positives or protective functions uh, that military psychiatry could offer to men who were dissenting more generally. Uh, and of course, that links to my second point, which is that dissent, opposition to the war, was far more prevalent than uh, literature in general on Germany has previously suggested, that you found far more pockets of it than I think one uh, would, would imagine. From reading the current literature on opposition to World War I in Germany. And so in terms of the first, I think this really became clear when looking at soldiers diagnosed with a number of illnesses. And again, you know, one could, and I, I do this at certain times in the book, it's a little bit maddening really, you know, you could have 10, 15 diagnoses that all essentially could revolve around the same basic sets of symptoms. So we might call it war trembling, we might call it shell shock, we might call it um, hysteria, we might call it war neurosis or things like this. But for shorthand, we would just sort of say these things that we tend to think of as war trauma. Um, and the reality is that these men were not uh, always blamed for being weak. They were not always pointed out as somehow constitutionally um, inferior. Uh, they were not usually, given the frightening treatments like electric shock so highlighted in the previous literature, nor were they simply denied pensions. That is, in many cases, their war trauma and any disability that came from that long-term was recognized as something that was an effect of the war. And so, again, it's not that the negatives that have been portrayed in the literature already didn't happen, but that appears to have been a less common response. Um, generally, I found that there was a fair recognition uh, that men uh, who were so-called war tremblers were suffering the effects of an unprecedented and horrific war, that they were given time away from the battlefield to try and recuperate, that they were given pensions if they couldn't recuperate. Um, and indeed, you find in the actual case files a lot of willingness of doctors to say they're not exactly sure why X, Y, and Z are happening so to err in the favor of the patient, that is the soldier who could no longer fight, they would go ahead and approve something like a pension. Um, so again, not to sort of say that, that their treatment was good, it, it wasn't good for a number of reasons, not only that some of them were treated very, very badly and dismissed, but also that, you know, simply they didn't have the techniques nor the time um, nor the ability to undertake what we might consider as really good treatment, like let's say something like talk therapy. Uh, the bad treatment, however, had a lot to do with things like limited supplies, limited options, and that's hardly surprising in the midst of an all-encompassing war. But it wasn't always because simply the doctors didn't believe that these men were suffering from trauma. And I think the second point that, you know, there, there was a lot more dissent. Here's where the war tremblers can be included on this spectrum, though we have to include them carefully. It's not to sort of suggest that anyone who came down with some sort of um, psychological illness was a dissenter. Uh, that's been proposed in, in various ways of looking at things uh, sort of as an inchoate way of sort of saying, I just can't, you know, I'm dissenting because my, I just can't go on anymore. That's not what I'm suggesting. I am looking at more specific, reasoned, purposeful dissent. And what I'm suggesting is that here there are some people uh, who are suffering from what undoubtedly appear to be very, very real cases of trauma, but who also fall on the spectrum of dissent. Um, it becomes somewhat more clear when you move to a category like deserters, who are clearly simply voting with their feet and saying, I am not going to fight in this war anymore. And it becomes the most clear when you go to something like the category of conscientious objectors, who are not only saying, I'm not going to fight anymore, but clearly stating their intentions um, and sort of saying, and these are my reasons why. Um, and the interesting thing here is, is that I think one of the reasons why this has not been recognized as much as perhaps it should have been, is that a lot of that dissent was medicalized. 
by the army at the time. And so it was labeled by them as well as, you know, overlooked by historians. It was labeled as sickness, not opposition to the war. So I think a real um, uh, related next question is about your source base, because I think part of why you're able to make these new contributions is because you seem to be working with different sorts of sources than people had in the past. So I'd like to give you a chance to talk about them. Um, and it seems to me like you have used, uh, you know, sources that previous historians may have overlooked or didn't have access to. Uh, and if I remember correctly from the book, you consulted over 2000 individual case files, uh, in researching this. So, um, I was wondering if you'd talk about the source bases, how you found your sources and how you uncovered these individual cases and, you know, why you, why or why uh, you can also tell me I'm wrong, but uh, <laughs> why maybe I might be right that the, these sources are crucial to your new, your, your new claims. I, I think so. I mean, I think, you know, had I not used actual patient files, which are for, you know, I think many reasons underutilized. I mean, it seems like they're somewhat more underutilized uh, in, in German history, perhaps in some, than in some other fields. But generally, you know, there, there are, again, many of these very, very great compelling books uh, that are written on this period on war tremblers that largely um, do not use any actual patient files. And again, some of the reasons I think are to do with the fact that they are very hard to track down in some cases. They're, you know, not surprisingly, in many of the archives I was working in were, you know, I may have been the only person there. I mean, at one point I was literally in someone's office as they were just, uh, it was a former head of one of the psychiatric hospitals who had turned himself into somewhat of a, a historian after he retired. And I was literally just sitting in his office as he pulled out <laughs> files. Um, you know, the other thing I think the difficulty of using these and why some people might shy away from them is because there is no real organization. Um, you don't, most of them are not labeled for what people have. They're labeled either by last name, which can include civilians and military patients in some hospitals. It, it has a lot to do with how care was organized and which particular um, hospitals you were looking at. But sometimes they also include civilian records that you have to sort of wade through and just sort of say, okay, that's a civilian um, and it also is sometimes simply uh, listed by year, and that's somewhat better. But then again, you have no idea if the person is diagnosed with hysteria. You have no idea. So you can't just simply sort of go through and look for people who are listed as conscientious objectors. Um, and that's even more interesting because very often people who are conscientious objectors are, you know, that's almost an aside. That's not what they're they're being listed as. They're being listed with things like schizophrenia or other things. So you really have to sort of sit there and go through every file. And of the ones that deal with, you know, military patients, you have to go through all the diagnoses. And then even when you're looking at things like schizophrenia, you have to look through and sort of, you know, read through the file and say, oh, wait a minute, they're talking about this person thinking that the war is a bad idea. Um, and so that's sort of how you get at these. And so initially when I was going to look for conscientious objectors, um, the sort of downside was that I had to look through everything. It was a bit like looking for needles in a haystack. Uh, but at the same time, that turned out to be one of the best things because I had to read through a lot of these files on things like hysteria. And as I read through them, I started to realize that the story the files were telling me did not match up with the story, uh, the, the accounts that I had been reading from books that were based on the public sources, the pronouncements of, of leading physicians and things like that. And so I think it helps us understand the reality of how these men were treated much more than perhaps the rhetoric. And it's not that those two didn't interact. Um, and it's, I, I would also say in the general literature that the rhetoric has been a little bit um, monolithically portrayed. There's a lot more nuance in the net rhetoric, but it really comes out clearly once you read the actual patient files that these very sort of, you know, general harsh pronouncements that are coming down from leading physicians do not match up with what the actual treatment for these men looks like when you start to sort of analyze what they're going through. And um, I would also just highlight you for a little bit of praise with the sources, because I, I do feel that you're, um, you know, you're because you're using these individual files, you're able to get these um, really, from a reader's perspective, really nice anecdotes or individual stories that you're able to pepper pepper throughout the book, which makes it, you know, 
make, but besides proving your point, makes it come alive a little bit more for the reader. Yeah, I, I do hope that. I mean, I guess I, you know, I think there is a certain, you know, you, one hopes when one really thinks, you know, and I, I guess as I get older and, you know, think about things, you know, these were, most of these people I'm reading about, they were very, very young. They were going through horrific things, you know, at the end of many of these files, the people die or they talk about these sort of, you know, horrific injuries that will plague, would have plagued them for the rest of their lives. And you understand sort of the the humanity of some of these people when you sort of read a file and hear, you know, when we think of some of these files, they're not sort of clear, short, sort of the patient comes in, does X, Y, and Z, and then he leaves. Some of these files go on for years. Some of them include personal correspondence, which was either held back by the hospital for certain reasons so they could censor what was sent out, or some of it is used as evidence to indicate what is the problem, uh, the issue the patient is suffering. But some of it sometimes are these long-term correspondences which develop between doctors and patients uh, to where, you know, years later, they're still writing back saying, you know, I really, um, in some cases, one comes to mind in particular saying, I really uh, appreciated the care I got there. And if you ever have someone who needs, you know, if you ever need someone to work there, I'd love to come back and work and things like that. So I think it really um, helps understand, you know, the, the, the enormity of the loss during that war and that these were all individuals with lives and hopes and aspirations and families who, who missed them. Sort of, you know, I read one uh, anecdote and I think it makes it in the book where one family is very upset because they weren't given any warning that their uh, loved one was about to die. And they only get noticed that their, uh, the, this, this loved one died, uh, I think, a few weeks after he died. And the hospital simply writes back and says, we have barely any time to do X, Y, and Z, you know, sort of kind of almost like you should be lucky we told you he died at all, right? And just to sort of see the grief of that family and, and sort of trying to imagine what that really meant. I think it also helps us understand, you know, the real resistance to war um, and the real reasons why, you know, some countries may have uh, appeased during the, the 1930s. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so I have one other issue I want to raise here. Um, and it's, uh, I'm just quoting you from the book here. And that is at one point you say, uh, or you reference the quote problems involved with attempting to reignite to re-diagnose individual individual patients from World War One, and when I read that, it almost sounded like you were anticipating, you know, like how uh, a reviewer might criticize how you're using your sources or something like that. And you dealt with it very well in the book, but uh, I was wondering if you could comment uh, on this matter here. Sure. Yeah. I mean, certainly, it's it's a legitimate question, and I think, you know, on the one hand, I might say it's it's hard to definitively diagnose many psychological disorders, period. You know, leading, leading doctors at the time, as leading doctors do now, can't all necessarily agree on the same diagnoses for things. You know, you look at a leg, it's broken. Everyone agrees that's a broken leg. You know, what someone exactly in terms of mental processes is, is, is suffering from is, is much harder. Um, and I think one even finds in the patient files themselves, illuminating discussions of doctors you know, saying how hard it is to determine what is actually happening with this patient. And I think in some ways that to me also really illuminated how much they were actually trying to get at a real diagnosis. So someone comes in who is a conscientious objector, they're not necessarily just simply saying, oh, um, this person's crazy, you know, uh, lock them up and throw away the key. We just don't want them to be a problem anymore. Some of them are really going through these extensive discussions on how can we figure out whether or not this person has some sort of thing that we would recognize as a mental illness. And so I'm certainly not trying to re-diagnose or diagnose or sort of say what, whether diagnoses are correct or not. I mean, there are times in the book where I sort of suggest it's peculiar that a certain diagnosis would have been you know, made given the information that was noted. Um, but I think what we can do is we can read through not a couple, but if you read through a couple thousand, then we begin to start to see the patterns. And you understand a lot from which diagnoses physicians choose, whether they tend to find certain people mentally ill or not, competent or not, the reasons they give for these determinations, the outcomes 
or the treatments they suggest for these determinations, whether or not a particular soldier, soldier X, really has diagnosis Y, then doesn't become so much the object as why did many soldiers who presented themselves in this way end up being diagnosed for these common reasons with diagnosis Y becomes more the issue. And I think that we can rely on when we see enough of these cases. And and hopefully I've tried to show that by looking through so many of these cases and showing the, the patterns. Why is it that doctors thought men with certain symptoms were suffering from certain issues? And in particular, why is it that something like conscientious objection was conceived of as very frequently a mental illness? Or why is it the desertion in the army was frequently seen as indicative of some sort of mental, um, if not extensive mental illness, that it was seen as an example of some sort of mental issue that deserved leniency? And that's what I think we can very clearly see which is a very different thing, I think, than trying to diagnose or re-diagnose individual patients, which is always, I think, very tricky. Um, So in your first chapter, you do, uh, you really contextualize um, a lot of the analysis uh, of your many case files that you do later in the book. And part of this background chapter is that you review the history of pacifism prior to World War I. Um, so I was curious if you could talk about why you feel pre-war, uh, pacifism in Germany was important, even though, you know, in your own description, it was something of a marginal phenomenon before 1914. Yeah. And here I would say it's important because it's important to my particular story, but in the way you set up the question, it, 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 you're, you're right. It is marginal, both within Germany and even fairly unimpressive compared to elsewhere. Um, in 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 the world at the, in, in Europe at the time, it is, however, important. I think to the story I wanted to tell, at least, because showing the character, not only the relative weakness of it, but also the way in which pacifism presented its ideas um, pre-war, allows you to see just how much this really important moment of the war itself changes, and I would say, really creates pacifism as we understand it, including that it means you are eschewing war, that it means that you have conscientious objectors. All of these things as fundamental to pacifism really are creations of World War I. You don't tend to find those generally in pre-war pacifism. In fact, pre-war pacifism is almost unrecognizable, I think, to us in terms of what it meant. It had much more to do with the idea of war could only be pursued when it was just, but war could be pursued. There wasn't a sense of conscientious objection being part of that. There was the sense that, you know, you needed to have various um, legal structures throughout the world to sort of slow that down so things didn't resort to war, but it still included the possibility of just wars. And it's only really with the actual real horrors and so many of these men going through these these horrific sort of, you know, tribulations of World War One that you get a pacifism which emerges completely transformed and, and what we tend to think of. Yeah. And then moving into the second chapter, you you kind of begin to tell this really interesting story about, uh, you know, there's ways in which it's, you know, I guess humbling for us as academics, right? It's a story about how academic ideas are both influential and not in practice. <laughs> um, but uh what you talk about is how the di- you know the diagnosis of hysteria became dominant among academic elites by the middle of the war. That, at least that's kind of the, the traditional narrative um, that that you basically acknowledge also is true. Um, and this diagnosis of hysteria is interesting to me personally because I've done a lot of work with you know uh, female Catholic. Uh, mystics who are always labeled as or diagnosed as being hysterical also. Um, but you wish to complicate how we understand the way doctors may have actually treated soldiers whom the leaders of their fields wish to label as historical, hysterical and subject to uh, brutal treatment. So, uh, yeah, I mean, I w- really was just wondering if you'd share some of your analysis on this theme with our listeners. Sure. And I think you're right. Part of the story here is a difference between rhetoric and reality or a difference between how 
very elite doctors, elite doctors who were at least for the public perception of some of these things, tone setting, how they spoke about this and conceptualized this and the reality of how, you know, the, the, the many, many very, very average um, physicians, psychiatrists, neurologists were treating these men. And there is a divide there. One finds that um, that is part of the explanation. Though I would say, you know, as I mentioned before, I think even the rhetoric has in the literature up until this point been too monolithically portrayed. I think there are a fair amount of doctors who I would say could be qualified as elite in that they published in academic journals, they taught at universities, they were consulted, that they actually recognized um, varying degrees of, uh, of the war's role in creating uh, these traumatic responses. But what does come through very clearly, and here the, the literature is right, that there does appear to be around 1916 this shift to diagnosing people with hysteria that becomes a common diagnosis that we would think about in terms of war trauma. And there is the sense among some doctors, again, what the literature gets right, that that is almost a dismissive diagnosis, that it's not really the war that's creating it, but something else, something about the individual who becomes hysterical. But again, even among academic doctors, if one really looks into the references here, you find that there is a not inconsequential number of them who actually suggest that hysteria may not be simply something that comes from, you know, wishing that you could not fight in the war because you want to go home and just live off of a pension for the rest of your life because you you have these wishes to just simply sort of, you know, shirk your responsibilities. And so there's a huge distinction between what exactly, what emotional thing is driving it. And one of the things that some doctors come up with is something very similar to what we think of as the response that creates P- something like PTSD, which is horrific emotional pain and shock and fear from what's happening in the war, right? And they're not just sort of simply saying these men are cowards. They're sort of saying this is an unprecedented war. We cannot imagine what some of these people are experiencing, and we should not be surprised that some of them are coming back with all sorts of traumatic problems, right? So the interesting thing here is even if many doctors are using the term hysteria by 1916, late 1916, 17 onwards, they don't all necessarily mean the same thing. And certainly all of them don't necessarily mean that in this dismissive way. Um, what, what is even more interesting is when one goes to the actual patient files. Um, again, one can see this shift where many things are moving in the direction of hysteria, perhaps not quite as neatly. But again, you find that hysteria does not always come with what the literature up until this point, the scholarly literature has told us is this idea of dismissiveness or the treatment of, you know, shock therapy, or there were a number of other horrific treatments. I mean, one of them was essentially for people who had uh, vocal disruptions as part of their hysteria. There was sort of a treatment where they would almost simulate choking on something to sort of get you over this process, right? There were a lot of brutal treatments. One finds that when one actually looks at the treatments prescribed, those do not tend to be prescribed in the majority of cases, right? That they sort of say things like, um, here are some calming agents, you'll have some good diet, you'll have some rest. Um, You know, if we were to believe the way um, sort of the most strident proponents of how war tremblers should be treated, you know, would be, they go in there, they should be cured in a couple of days and then sent back to the front or sent to work somewhere. We realize that some of these men in reality, and, and by some, I say a considerable number of them are staying weeks, months, some in, in some cases, years. And I sort of detail that this is again, not a great treatment, but it is hardly dismissive. It's not as if the doctors are sort of saying, you don't really have some sort of problem. You really just need to get back to the front. And that happens even when sometimes these men are being diagnosed with hysteria, which has, at least in the literature up until this point, always indicated this dismissive, sort of you're almost kind of faking it, or you're almost kind of just being a weakling um, sort of response from doctors. That, That doesn't appear to be the case. And so again, one finds that there is this elite, non-elite divide in doctors um, to some extent, but that's not the whole story. 
And what one finds universally, even sometimes, this was what, what was so tremendously interesting, looking at the um, hospital where Robert Galp, who was sort of like the, he towed the Harlan in public, he was consulted by the government, really came out and he's, he's used as sort of the best example, one of the best examples of a hardline dismissive attitude towards uh, war tremblers, that in his own treatment of war tremblers, men diagnosed with hysteria in his clinic, he was far more accommodating. He was far more humane. He was far more varied. He was far more cautious um, in the way in which he actually went about treating some of these men. It's, it's really quite shocking to see the difference between the public pronouncements and the actual I guess here we would say not on public display treatment uh, that Robert Galp gave to many of his his patients. Yeah, I think any time that uh, history is done well, we always get a much more complex picture when we look at it carefully than it appears on the surface. And I think your uh, your your work and uh, there really demonstrates that. Um, so. And, and you started to talk about this a little bit in that answer, but shifting the emphasis from doctors and treatment to the agency of soldiers, I think is important because that's such an important part of your book. And, you know, you're really interested in the space that soldiers had to articulate dissent. And you're interested in the fact that they were articulating dissent against the war. Yeah. Um, but you approach the subject with a lot of nuance and you describe a spectrum of dissent kind of existing for these men. So I was wondering if you could describe for the audience how you understand the way this you know, spectrum of dissent worked. Sure. Um, and here, again, because I was so interested initially in these conscientious objectors, and those are, you know, they're, they're clear-cut cases. These people state their objections. They clearly state that, you know, X, Y, and Z, these are the reasons uh, I will not fight. I mean, some of them, there's this one amazing case in the book where someone re-enrolls in the military, specifically gets himself called up again, simply so he can say, I refuse to fight <laughs> and give them the reasons why he refuses to fight. Um, those are pretty clear cases, I think, would all say are dissent. Where it becomes somewhat trickier, right, is when we talk about deserters. Now, on some basic level, they're all dissenting. They're not where they're supposed to be. But, you know, clearly what I'm looking at here are people who had some sort of ethical, you know, religious, um, some sort of political qualm, humanitarian qualm about fighting and who are not just sort of saying, I don't want to fight because I'm scared. That's not what we're talking about. Um, and so to separate those out, it's sometimes hard because, you know, we don't necessarily always have a lot of information on why people deserted. Some people simply deserted because they wanted to go see their families. Some people deserted because they just simply didn't want to, you know, keep taking orders anymore. But clearly, as you read these files, you begin to believe that some of these, or you begin to see that some of these people believed very clearly in the wrongness of the war and were making very, very concerted stands, despite the fact that they weren't COs. And the reason for this was, is because there is at the time no official option for for calling yourself a conscientious objector. There is no legal sort of, you know, position to do that. And so one of the best ways to do it, because it's one of the least, um, one of the more low stakes ways in terms of consequences of doing it, is to try and desert. And this is also interesting. And here it shows a, a, an extreme caution and an extreme abiding for the um, legalities of a military in the midst of a horrific war where it needs all hands on deck to say most people who desert, whether or not they are deserters or simply not where they're supposed to be that specific time, they're charged with what we would think of in English as the crime of being AWOL and not full desertion. And that's simply because they say it's very hard to prove full desertion. They said, why are we going to try and prove full desertion when that means this person meant to leave and they were never coming back? They're charged with going AWOL, which means they're not where they're supposed to be at the time, but it's not like they were never coming back, even though it seems pretty clear many of them were not going to come back even when they were, except for having been caught. But what you find in these sort of files is that overwhelmingly, more often than people who are accused of other infractions like brawling or stealing or other things, 
deserters tend to get routed into the psychiatry segment. So they might be um, charged, and then they said, let's have an investigation of their mental state to see if there were any problems. Sometimes deserters will ask for it. Very often, the um, people in charge, sort of their CO will ask for it, things like that. It's a very, very common thing. We don't have all the statistics on it, but as I sort of try and you know, sort of say what we do have the statistics on, it appears that desertion is one of the most frequent things that they request some sort of mental or psychiatric observation for. And clearly that indicates some sense of, well, if you're deserting, there must clearly be something wrong if you're not where you're supposed to be, as opposed to stealing, where people were like, okay, we understand why you steal. You know, people want things, they steal, or they, they fight, they brawl. And here, when you read through those accounts, you begin to see things that in many cases are overlooked from the legal aspect of it that we very clearly would identify as means of objection. So for example, in one file, um, it's just indicated as sort of an indication that the patient is untidy or that he's just odd, but he's writing things on his wall. And it's bad because he's writing things on his wall. They make almost nothing in the official case about the fact that he's writing things like, we're only fighting for the rich, we're not getting any, you know, things like that, we're all dying for the rich people and things things that we would recognize as clearly politically motivated opposition to serving in the war. And so if one sees that enough, which one can in these accounts, one comes to realize that a not uncommon route for people who had there been a legal option to declare yourself officially a conscientious objector objector, very possibly would have done so. Without that legal option, very clearly a not insubstantial number of soldiers are going the route of desertion, right? On the sort of other end of the spectrum, so if we have COs on one end, deserters somewhere in the middle, you do have many patients who are suffering from trauma. And again, this is one of the interesting things of having had to look through so many of these files. I never would have found it otherwise. But you find that there are many men which, you know, we can sort of look at and say, it it does sound like they're really suffering from some sort of traumatic you know, PTSD type syndrome. But patients, no more than human beings in general, are not monolithic. And just because they're sick doesn't mean that they can't have multiple goals or ends in mind. It doesn't mean that they can't use situations to their advantage. And and I'm not sort of talking about shirkers or malingerers. I'm talking about people who we would clearly say, it looks like from the situation, they literally are suffering from some sort of very, very problematic mental illness. But when they're in there, we can see from many of the other factors that they are clearly extending their time there, and they are clearly doing things because they simply object to going back to fighting in the war. And again, this is from a lot of the sort of, you know, what we would call ego documents that end up in these patient files, letters that were written to them, copies of letters that they wrote to other people, things scribbled on the war, things, you know, that... Um, doctors overheard them saying to other people, which again, have this sense of one of the reasons why they don't want to get back out there and fight is because they oppose this general idea of the war. And so I think it's, it's, it's hard and one has to do it carefully, but one can find dissent in a number of spaces in this medicalized setting, in these psychiatric files. And one can find in many ways that these patients are not only being, you know, that the doctors have more power, it's not an even playing field at all, but that that does not mean these patients are without any agency or powerless to try and make the situation work in their favor in some cases. Well, I think um, as we approach the end of the interview, uh, a way to bring this full circle since your project started with conscientious objectors, and I want to give you a chance to uh, talk about them uh, one last time here, uh, and that's what your final chapter is about. Um, and you think there's more of them w- than was previously assumed. Um, so more of the conscientious objectors kind of on the further end of the, the spectrum. And I thought you made some interesting, had some interesting ideas about how you, what you're studying could be an important link to the uh, more radical pacifist movement of the 20s and 30s. So uh, I was wondering if you talk about that a little bit, how what you studied in World War I gives us this connection to um, how pacifism was viewed in Germany during the Weimar era. Sure. I think 
and here again, I'm just, this comes out in the epilogue because I'm not the, the, I, I studied the war period and I can only sort of see the linkages to the post-war period, the Weimar period. But, you know, many other people have done a, a lot of research there um, that, you know, one should consult. But it does really appear to me that the war itself is this creation of pacifism uh, as we know it. Right. And, and again, that this dissent was far more common than we thought. And that conscientious objection was something that was really a factor, right, in a way that we hadn't thought about before. And so one can view the middle of a world war as the nadir, as the failure, as, as the worst point for pacifism. Whereas I would sort of suggest this is actually where this spark is created that turns it into what we know. And if we think about Germany today as sort of having one of the most entrenched or strong traditions in conscientious objection, we really have to look back to this point where it is created, and that's World War I, as a reaction um, to this horrific warfare. One of the very odd things that I had to um, sort of find out as I was reading these things is some of the most ardent uh, conscientious objectors were soldiers who had fought quite willingly um, early on in the war and by a certain point sort of say that's enough. And so it's almost this process. It's not that you are a conscientious objector. You are, you become a conscientious objector during World War I. And that's part of the process. And we can see that in the Weimar period, and again, I haven't done the research on this specifically, but everything that I'm looking at suggests, as I portray in the epilogue, that this pacifism was a lot more um, important during that period than we perhaps have given it credit for being. And that's for understandable reasons, right? Because again, then you have the Nazis and you have World War II and it's like, well, how could it have been that important if we just went into another massive war? And I think that's perhaps putting the the cart before the horse, so to speak, that we can still see how it was very important and vibrant in the 1920s during Weimar, despite the fact that it ultimately falters again. Uh, under the Nazis. And so that's sort of the story I'm trying to tell, that it's not an unbroken line. But if we really want to sort of look for the creation of this conscientious objection or this, you know, pacifist tradition, that we have to see this story fundamentally being created, being sparked during World War I. And sort of that's why I see um, this prevalence and this importance really starting there and then extending on um, into the Weimar period. We can't just assume because 1933 and 1939 happened that everything that comes in between doesn't matter and was going to just go one way, would be my point. Excellent. So, Rebecca, at this point, we have taken up a tremendous amount of your time. Um, I am going to end the interview with a traditional New Books Network question. And that question is, uh, now that you've completed this project, what are you working on now? However, a caveat, of course, is when I pose this question in the middle of the pandemic, it always seems to ring a little bit hollow, given how everybody's lives have been disrupted. So um, maybe a better way to pose it is, are you able to work on something new now? Uh, my my <laughs> big uh, efforts lately have been uh, devoted to staying one step ahead of all of the work deadlines. Um, <laughs> so yes, I had initially planned on going back last summer to research actually in a couple of the same archives. Uh, again, these archives that I said very often, they were sort of, you know, not the, the big archives that people tend to work in, but I found lovely people there, people who helped me and the, the documents were so rich and really underutilized. And I said, one of the interesting things I found when I was reading through these patient files um, for World War I is that I would come across these inquiries and these subsequent doc- documents from the Nazi period into these soldiers who had had psychiatric problems during World War I. And so I wanted to look at how that played out for them in terms of the eugenics laws. So not only in terms of things like, um, you know, forced sterilizations, but also in things ultimately like euthanasia and, and what's the connection there, right? Because we've had this sort of sense of, you know, veterans being venerated um, in the Nazi period, but we know that's not the reality. And so I wanted to look at from these documents how that played out on a very, again, case-by-case basis, sometimes to quite devastating ends. Um, so I'm hoping, uh, I, you know, I, I thought I could go last summer. I couldn't. I'm, again, hope springs eternal. Uh, you know, 
thinking maybe this summer something can happen. But at some point, I'd like to get back to the files there and start researching them from a different angle and hopefully um, look at this story uh, during the um, Nazi period. Uh, but we'll see. We'll see. <laughs> yeah, as with all of us, uh, things, it's uh, the future is uncertain. So, but if yes. you're we, able, I think we able really, to... <laughs> I was going to say, I think we really get a sense for our our... Uh, historical subjects, not knowing how the story is going to end up when we usually do, because we're, you know, we, we've seen how it all turns out. Now we really get the sense of living through these momentous times and we don't know what's going to happen, right? We don't know what the summer is going to bring. We don't know what next year is going to bring. Yeah. Yeah. So, but if you, if you're able to see that project through and you write another book, we'd love to have you back on the show. Well, thank you very <laughs> much. And thank you for having me this time. It was uh, wonderful talking with you. Great. And thanks for giving us your time and being on the show today, Rebecca. So you have been listening to an episode in New Books and German Studies, a channel in the New Books Network of Podcasts. My name is Michael O'Sullivan, and our t- guest today was Dr. Rebecca Ayoko Bennett. We discussed her recent book, Diagnosing Dissent, Hysterics, Deserters, and Conscientious Objectors in Germany During World War I, published with Cornell University Press in 2020. I hope that all of our listeners are well, or at least as well as can be expected. Uh, please stay healthy, everyone. Hang in there. And uh, thank you for tuning in. We hope you'll continue to listen.